Hi everyone, this is Bob Bro, and welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. We're doing an archive show. This week we are pulling a show out of the vault that was originally broadcast back on August the 4th, 2014, right in the dog days of summer. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. says my chair squeaks. Yeah, I guess it does. Well, I guess by the end of the show, you will be sick and tired of hearing that. Oh, well, what can I say? Hey, everybody, how you doing? This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Glad to have you on board here in August. August of 2014. Can you believe it? This is the eighth month of the year. Wow, where is it going? You know, they say as you grow older, time goes faster. Well, that's true, folks, because I just can't believe how fast it's going. Glad to have you aboard, though. Can't believe another two weeks has gone by since the last time we got together. But you guys don't look any the worse for wear. You look pretty good. Janine, you're looking a little, a little tired. Everything okay over there? Chester, you look like you're raring to go. Yeah, Fritz, the leader hose, nice touch. All right, well, listen, welcome. We've got a great show lined up this time. We have an episode of um, Dragnet for you that I think you're going to enjoy. We're going to follow that up with The Halls of Ivy. One of the best old-time radio shows ever produced. And then we're going to follow things up with Matt Dillon and the gang on an episode of Gunsmoke. So we got a great lineup. And if you would just get yourself situated and settle down, everybody, go grab yourself something to drink, fluff, uh, fluff up the pillows, fluff up the pillows, fluff, fluff up the pillows on, uh, on your comfortable chair there, and we're going to get started in just a moment.
this is the city. They don't, uh, they don't, never did that on radio, did they? That used to always be on the television show. Remember, they pan a, a scene from L.A. and they would say, this is the city. Los Angeles, California. Two million people work here, live here, play here, love here. Every once in a while, somebody dies here because somebody kills here. And that's when I go to work. I carry a badge. I'm a cop. Something like that. Remember how they used to always start this? Hmm. Never thought about it, but that was just TV. Well, it's time for some Dragnet. Everybody's, uh, one of everybody's favorite police shows. And of course, this is uh, Jack Webb Personified. And we are going to go back tonight to an episode that was originally broadcast on NBC on June the 14th, 1955. So of all the shows we play tonight, this is the newest. This is from 1955. We have a Gunsmoke from 54 and a Halls of Ivy, I think, from 1950. And this is a pretty good one. Uh, This time, Joe and Frank are working in robbery detail. That was one thing about this show. One week they'd be in robbery, the next week they'd be in homicide, the next week they'd be in bunco, and I don't think that was very realistic, but certainly they had to do that to uh, show all the different aspects of the police department, and we can appreciate that. But tonight they are working on a robbery, and uh, this one is just kind of light, nothing real serious, but it's kind of fun, and at the end it's got one of those endings Way at the end, where where he comes on and announces, what is it, Hal Gibney or whoever does it, announces the uh, the sentencing. Oh, man, you're going to clap your hands. You're going to go, yeah, just fair warning on that. All right. So now we're going back to June the 14th, 1955 on Dragnet. And the name of this one is The Big Fall Guy. Here it comes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. The owner of a small delicatessen reports that he's been robbed. He says the thief casually walked out of his store and disappeared. Your job? Find him. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Sunday, October 9th. It was overcast in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith, the boss of Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from communications. It was 3.48 p.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery. I got it. Robbery, Friday. Yeah, just a second. Give me that pad. Yeah. All right, go ahead, please. All right, I have it. What happened? How long ago? All right. Right away. Thank you. Guy came into a delicatessen over on Sunset. Took out a pretty big order. Yeah? Sack full of money. 
4.15 p.m., Frank and I drove out to a small combination delicatessen and grocery on the corner of Sunset and 3rd. The owner of the store, Mr. Paul Claypool, told us that the robbery had taken place approximately 20 minutes earlier. He said that the patrol car officer who had answered his call had left to make an immediate search for the suspect. Gave a real good description, I did. Yes, sir, you said that. Kept my wits about me. All the time that young Hoodlum was in the store, I was studying him. Didn't let him catch on, of course, but I was making mental notes. I wonder if you'd tell us just what happened, Mr. Claypool. How's that? Well, we'd like to hear about the robbery right from the beginning. Oh, check it up on me, huh? Sir? Making sure I give you the same story I gave that other cop. Oh, no, sir, that's not the idea. <laughs> I told him everything there was to tell. Oh, we'd like to hear it, too, that's all. You ain't going to hear nothing different than what he did. Well, would you tell us anyway? Well, if that's how you want it. This year, crook fella came walking into my store, big as life. That's how it begun. Mm -hmm. That was about 20 minutes ago, was it? Oh, it might be 21 or two, but now it depends on how long you've been talking to me. Yes, sir. What did he say when he came out? Bandit fella? That's right. Nothing. What? Nothing. That's what he said. Not a single solitary word. I see. Didn't even open his mouth. Just handed me an envelope. Yeah. Sealed it was. Sealed up shut. Go ahead. Struck me as being kind of peculiar. What do you mean? Well, uh, lots of my customers bring in lists of things they're supposed to buy. They don't seal them in no envelope, though. I see. My instinct show was right. <laughs> it wasn't no grocery list. It was far from it. Is that so? Note inside. Hand-printed it was. I see. Wonder what it said? Well, that would be nice. Yes, sir. Take all of the money out of the cash register, put it in a paper bag, and hand it over. Uh -huh. That wasn't all. You want to hear the rest? If you would, please. Don't do any talking. Don't try to stop me. If you do, I'll kill you. That was the end of it. Do you still have this note, Mr. Claypool? Right over there. It's laying on the register. Mm. What if we could see it, please? Well, that's up to you, I guess. Hmm? Other cops said I wasn't to handle it on account of fingerprints. Well, we'll try to be careful with it. Help yourself. Ain't my place to take no chances on destroying valuable evidence. Yes, sir. Well, had it right, didn't it? Word for word? Yes, sir. You sure did. After you read this note, what'd you do, Mr. Claypool? I'd done just what it said. You gave him the money from the register? That's right. Put it in a paper bag, a number eight. What's that, sir? Eight, eight. That, that was the size of the bag. Oh. How much money did you give him? All there was, a neighborhood of $50. Most of it in bills? Most, I'd say. A couple of tens, three or four fives, some ones. Uh, rest was change. All right. What happened next? Fellow took the bag, kind of grinned, and walked out. Looked real pleased with himself. Did you see where he went? Left the store. Yes, sir. I mean, after that. Turned down the street. To get into a car? I didn't see none. You didn't try to follow him? Nope. I didn't aim to stick out my neck none. Figured that was up to you fellas. That's right. Now, Mr. Claypool, do you know if the robber had a gun? Must have. Did you see it? Nope. But uh, that there note said he'd kill me if I gave him any trouble. Yes, sir. Must have had a gun if he aimed to kill me. Well, stands to reason. Yes, sir. Was there anybody else in here when he came in? Just me. I don't do much business this time of the afternoon and not on Sunday. Mm -hmm. I don't. Had you ever seen this man before? No, not that I recollect. I wonder if you could describe him for us. Oh, sure. I told you I gave him a real good once over. Yes, sir. First off, he was a young fellow, right around the old 20, I'd say. Mm hmm. Husky, about 5'10, maybe weighs 170. Not fat, you understand. He's just husky. Mm hmm. Well, what about his coloring? Well, I'm coming to that. Yes, sir. Brown hair, medium brown. Kind of gray eyes, medium complexion. Any marks or scars? No. How was he dressed? Pants, uh, dark-colored, serge, more than likely. Blue serge. They looked like they was part of a suit. Mm -hmm. Couldn't see his shirt. He had on a sweater, yellowish, with uh, one of them uh, them collars that chokes you. What's that? Uh, fits all around your neck, you see, like so. See? Turtleneck sweater? Oh, oh, is that what you call it? Yes, sir. Turtleneck, huh? 
Well, that's the right good name. That's just what it looks like. Turtle poking out his neck. Yes, sir. Is there anything else you can tell us about this man? What have you got in mind? Well, Mr. Claypool, anything that would help us identify him. Well, sir, he acted real funny. Almost like he didn't know what he was doing. Oh? Kind of looked at me funny, too. Hmm. Don't know how to put it into words, exactly. Yes, sir. Why don't you come down to City Hall for a few minutes, Mr. Claypool? City Hall? Yes, sir. We'd like to show you some mug shots, see if you can make an identification for us. Well, that'd mean closing up the store. Well, it won't take very long. Well, I guess it will help catch this fellow. We'd appreciate it. Oh, excuse me. Yes, sir. Claypool's delicatessen. How's that? Who? Friday? That's for us, sir. Oh, 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 oh. Here you are. Thank you. This Friday. Yeah, that's right. How long ago? Fountain? Yeah, I got it. Thank you. Well, we won't need you downtown just yet, Mr. Claypool. Change your mind, huh? Yes, sir. What's that? Flower shop over on Fountain. Yeah. Sounds like the same guy. Frank and I told Mr. Claypool we'd check with him later. We left the delicatessen and drove out to the Pringer Flora shop on Fountain and Selma. 4.42 p.m., we talked to the victim, Miss Norma Devereaux. She seemed to be extremely agitated. She told us that a man had walked into the store about 4.30 and gave her a sealed envelope. She showed us the note the envelope had contained, and it appeared to be a duplicate of the note Mr. Claypool had been given. Did this man say anything to you, Miss Devereaux? I, I, I don't remember. I don't think so. Well, did you say anything to him? Oh, I, I was too scared. Yes, ma'am. How much money did he take? Well, I gave him all there was, everything in the register. I see, but about how much would you say? I'm not sure. You see, I, I don't work here. I was just helping out. Mm-hmm. The store belongs to my sister and brother-in-law. I see. They wanted to take their children for a ride this afternoon, so I said I'd look after the shop. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I never should have offered. I might have known something like this would happen. I've had a funny feeling all day long. Is that right? It's a bad week for me anyway, this whole week. Huh? According to my horoscope. Oh. And you don't have any idea how much money was stolen, Miss Devereaux? Well, I don't think it was very much. A few bills and some coins. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know what day this is? The date, I mean? Yes, ma'am. This is the 9th. The 9th. Oh, mm-hmm. I might have known. She said to be especially careful on the 9th and the 11th. Why didn't I pay more attention to that last reading? It certainly cost me enough. Mm-hmm. Now, Miss Devereaux, you notice where this man went when he left the shop? What? Did you notice where he went? Oh, no, no. I didn't pay any attention. I was just so relieved that he was gone. What if you describe him for us, please? Well... Miss Devereaux? I'm trying to think. Yes, ma'am. It just comes up a blank. His face, everything about him. Well, how is he dressed? I'm terribly sorry. I just can't remember. Well, maybe we can help you. Was he wearing a coat or a sweater? That's right. A sweater. I remember the sweater. Mm -hmm. What color was it? Uh, Lightish, I think. I'm not sure. What kind of a sweater? Would you recall that? Just a sweater, I guess. Mm. How about his hair? Eyes? Anything at all, Miss Devereaux? Well, there's one thing. I, I don't know whether it would do any good or not. Yes, ma'am. I feel like such a fool not being able to remember where it was or when, but I'm almost certain about it. What's that? That I've seen him before. Frank and I continued to question the victim. She insisted that she had met or seen the suspect sometime before the crime, but she was unable to recall the circumstances. 5.38 p.m., we drove both victims down to the city hall and asked them to go through the mug books for the purpose of identifying the suspect. Well, we finished another book, Sergeant. Yes, ma'am. Huh? Seems like you sure have enough of them. Yes, sir. If I could only think where it was. Ma'am? That I saw him before. Yes. 
Shall I get you folks some coffee? That sounds like a right good idea. How about you, miss? What? Would you like some coffee, too? Miss Devereaux. That's it. That's it. I remember now. His face, everything about him, it's the same man. I'm positive it is. Oh? It was when you mentioned coffee. That's what brought it back to me. Yes, ma'am. Now, just when was it you saw this man? Oh, let's see. It was last week when I went shopping for a new coat Tuesday. Yes, that's when it was, Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I was having lunch. The Fairway Cafeteria in Hollywood. Yes, ma'am. Well, it was crowded, and I was sitting alone. He came by and asked if he could use the same table. All right, go ahead. I nodded, and he sat down. I didn't pay any attention to him. Not really. I just went on and finished my lunch. He was still eating when I left. Mm -hmm. Anything else you can tell us about him? I think he had on the same clothes he was wearing today, the sweater anyway. I remember the sweater real plain now. I see. Now, you're sure this was the same man who robbed you? Oh, yes, I know it was. Mm -hmm. That'll help, won't it? My remembering where I saw him? Well, it might. I'll bet he eats there all the time, at that same cafeteria. Yes, ma'am, we'll check on that. Oh, he does. I just feel certain of it. You'll see, Sergeant. It was fate that made me go into that restaurant, and it was fate that made him sit at my table. Yes, ma'am. It was all part of a big plan. Our meeting like that, and then him robbing me today, it was all part of a big plan so that you could catch him. Yes, that's right. And you will catch him. Don't you worry about that. You'll catch him. Fate's against him. Well, that makes us even then, doesn't it? What? So are we. Now that she remembered seeing the suspect before, Miss Devereaux confirmed Paul Claypool's description. We asked the victims to continue going through the mug books. They were unable to come up with an identification. 6.31 p.m., Frank and I drove them home and we went off duty. The next day, October 10th, 10.05 a.m., we interviewed the day cashiers at the Fairway Cafeteria. They couldn't recall any specific customer who answered the suspect's description. 11.46 a.m., we went back to the office. Robbery Friday. Yeah, Larry. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks anyway. Right. Sloan. Yeah? Says he can't give us a lead from the way those notes were printed. Oh? Uh -huh. Well, how about an early lunch today, huh? It's all right with me. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't care. How about you? Doesn't make any difference to me. Well, suggest something. No, I told you it doesn't make any difference. Well, I don't know why it always has to be up to me, Joe. Hmm? Where we eat. Why don't you decide once in a while? All right, fine. Let's go to that new Chinese place on Broadway. For lunch? Well, why not? Well, you don't want Chinese food for lunch, Joe. I don't. Huh? Of course not. Well, what do you got in mind? I might have known. Hmm? I'd end up making the choice. Sure is a problem, isn't it? Well, it gets kind of monotonous, that's all, buddy. Well, it's tough. Say, uh... Yeah, something we can do for you? Uh, is this here where you, you the guys that handle robberies? Yeah, that's right. Like them two yesterday? Which two? Grocery store and flower shop. You know something about them, do you? Yeah, I know something. Well, just what is it? Who robbed him? I know who it was. Yeah. Well, I guess it was me. The man who had come into the office answered the description we'd received from the victims. He was in his early 20s, stocky build, about 5'10", brown hair and gray eyes. He was wearing dark blue trousers and a yellow turtleneck sweater. He told us that his name was Harvey Tilden and that he lived in a rooming house on West Ivar. He readily admitted the two robberies, but he insisted that he had not meant to commit the crimes. I didn't know what I was doing, that's all. I just didn't know. Well, what are you trying to sell us? Were you drunk? Of course not. I hadn't had a drink, not even a beer. Well? Well, he told me it was money they owed that I was collecting it for him. Who told you that? Stoney. Who's Stoney? Well, that's all I know him by, Stoney. And you were collecting money for him, is that it? Uh-huh. And you expect us to buy that, too, don't you? 
No, I guess not. Well, then why don't you try giving us the truth? Well, look, now, may I not the brightest guy in the world. If, if I was, I wouldn't be in this mess. Yeah. I come to you on my own accord, didn't I? Well, maybe you got scared. Maybe you figured it'd go easier with you if you gave yourself up. Isn't that it? Yeah, I guess I can't blame you for thinking that. Sure was a dumb trick. Well, why'd you do it then? Because I didn't know, because he told me it was just a job I was doing. Mm-hmm. Stoney told you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's hear it your way. Yeah, well, you, he, he said he worked for a kind of collection agency, you know, where they go after them deadbeats, you know? Yeah. Well, he said he had to have somebody to help him, only part-time, but the pay would be good. Yeah. Offered me the work. Mm-hmm. I ain't had a steady job lately. Sound kind of good to me. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was supposed to meet him yesterday afternoon, 3 o'clock. He picked me up in front of the place where I live. Yeah. Drove me past that grocery store and parked around the corner. Gave me an envelope and he told me to take it inside, hand it to the fellow who worked there. He said I was to make sure nobody else was in the store on account of he didn't want to make the old guy feel bad by collecting the debt in front of somebody else, you know? Yeah. So I'd done what he told me. I'd give the old guy the note, he'd give me the money, and I took it back to Stoney. Well, where was he while you were in the store? Well, around the corner, like I said. Why didn't he go in with you? He wanted to see if I could handle it myself, on my own, you know. That's what he told me. Mm-hmm. Well, then we we drove over to that there uh, flower place. Same routine. Yeah, only this time I got kind of suspicious, you know. Yeah. She acted so scared. The lady there didn't seem to me that having to pay up a debt would make somebody so scared. I, I told Stoney afterwards. He said it was just an act that they all put on like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I didn't exactly believe him. So next place we stopped, I opened up the envelope before I went inside, and I read that there note. Yeah, well. Well, I didn't know what to do. Uh, finally, I went back to the car, and I really told him off, Stoney. I told him I wasn't no thief. I told him he had to return all that money. What did he say? He just laughed at me. He said I was the biggest pigeon he ever met. I said if he didn't take back the dough, I'd go to the cops. He told me you'd throw me in jail that you'd never believe a word I told you. Mm-hmm. What happened then? I got out of the car. I said I wasn't a crook and nobody was going to make me be one. Mm-hmm. I was heading right for the police station. Then I, well, I got to thinking. I seemed like maybe he was right that nobody would believe a story like this. Well. Yeah. So I went home. All right, why'd you come in today? Well, I didn't sleep none too good last night. It's kind of worrying me what I'd done. I figured maybe he'd find some other sucker like me and pull that same stunt over again. I didn't want him to get away with it, so I decided to take my chances on you guys. I, I ain't going to get a short cow now, am I? Do you know where the Stoney lives? No, he never said, not to me. And you don't know his last name either? Uh-oh. Well, where'd you meet him? Hentley's gym. Or oh, on Olympic, I hang out there sometimes. Uh-huh. You a fighter? Oh, I, I, I had some bouts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how'd you and Stoney get acquainted? Oh, I don't know. We just started talking one day last week. He come in for a steam bath, and afterwards we were both watching some of the guys work out. I see. He was there again on uh, uh, Saturday. That's, that's when he offered me this job. Mm-hmm. What kind of a car does he drive? Chevy. Sedan? No, uh, coupe, hard top, last year's model. You know the license? No, I, I don't pay no attention. Mm. It wouldn't matter if it did. I ain't much at remembering things. Yeah. Can you tell us what Stoney looks like? Yeah, why, he's a big fella, uh, sharp dresser. How old is he? 35, maybe 40. Mm. What color is his hair? Sort of red. Anything else? 
scars, anything like that? No. That's the whole story, huh? Yeah. You didn't know you were robbing those stores? You didn't have any idea? Honest, I didn't. Sounds crazy, don't it? Yeah, it does. Joe, mm-hmm. I'll talk to you for a minute. Yeah. You wait right there, Tilden. Yeah, okay, okay. You must think we're pretty done, expecting us to fall for a line like that. Yeah. What's he take us for? I don't know. Couldn't be true, not a word of it. Yeah. Heck of it is. Yeah. Such a darn fool story, Joe. I just can't help believing it. I'm a lure. So do I. Frank and I continued to interrogate the suspect. He maintained his innocence, and we were unable to shake him. We ran the name Harvey Tilden through R&I. They had nothing on him. We also ran the name Stoney through the moniker file, and we came up with two possibles. We pulled the mug shots and showed them to Tilden. He tentatively identified one of the photos, James Brightstone, but he wasn't positive. We telephoned Brightstone's last known address, a small downtown hotel. They told us he'd moved during the summer, and they had no idea of his present whereabouts. We checked DMV and our own vehicle records. They reported that a late model Chevrolet was registered in Brightstone's name. Harvey Tilden was held in custody for further questioning. 4.08 p.m., Frank and I drove over to Hentley's gym on South Olympic and talked to the owner, George Hentley. What's right? Stoney. Yeah, that's right. Full name, maybe. James Brightstone, we're not sure. Hmm. Don't ring a bell. He in a fight game? Well, we aren't sure. How about a Harvey Tilden? You know him? That's your, sure I know him. He come here pretty often? Off and on. Used to do a little boxing. Had a perfect record. Six fights, six KOs. He was punchy before he ever got in a ring. Tilden says this is where he met the Stoney. That could be. Take a look at this picture, will you? Never seen this guy before. Hey, you got a lot of hand use it. Well... You know, I wouldn't swear to it. Guy looks something like this. Been coming in lately. Works out, takes a steam bath. You know his name? I never asked. You been around today? No, not so far. When was the last time? Do you remember? Uh, end of last week, Friday, Saturday. Have you talking to Tilden? Oh, I don't know. Maybe guys come in here, friendly type guys. They all talk to each other. All right, here's our card. So, this fellow comes back. Give us a call, will you? Are you want him for something? We want to talk to him. Okay, if he comes in, I'll call you. Thanks. Sure, I'm a real obliging type fellow. I got no beef with you cops. Uh, uh, be a waste of time, though. Hmm? Calling you. If you want to see this guy, all you got to do is turn around. What's that? He just walked in the door. Frank and I talked to the man George Hentley had pointed out. He readily admitted that he was James Brightstone. He also admitted knowing Harvey Tilden. He said he had spent the previous afternoon in his room at the Jackman Hotel. We telephoned the hotel, but the clerk was unable to confirm Brightstone's alibi. 5.31 p.m., we drove the suspect down to the city hall and continued our interrogation. Uh, look, why don't you guys just tell me what it is you want to know, spell it out in real big letters, and I'll give you the answer, same size. Where were you yesterday afternoon? Thought we already covered that. Let's go over it again. Okay, boys, I was in my hotel room. Well, the clerk doesn't back you up. Well, does he say I wasn't there? When was the last time you saw Harvey Tilden? Saturday over at the gym. Not yesterday, huh? Gym isn't open on Sundays. You know where Tilden lives? Nope. You picked him up at his rooming house yesterday, didn't you? <laughs> why would I be picking a crumb up like that? Did you offer Tilden a job? Oh, that's pretty funny. What's the joke? <laughs> I ain't got a job myself. Did you ever take Tilden for a drive? Boys, I'm telling you, the only place I ever seen the guy is Hantley's gym. Yeah. He knows what kind of a car you got. Oh? Make and model. Well, maybe he's seen me and I didn't see him. Mm-hmm. Now, look, this Tilden fellow, he's a screwball. He don't even know what time it is. Uh, whatever he told you, you can forget it. Well, there are a couple of things we can't forget. Yeah? Tilden says you put him up to robbing two stores yesterday. Are you kidding he says you hired him to work for you, to collect some past due bills. Boy, this kid is really off his rocker, isn't he? Maybe. Where was I supposed to be while he was doing me these favors? Outside in your car, waiting for him. Mm, go on, boys, you interest me. Well, that's about it. And uh, you'd pick up a guy in a phony story like that? <laughs> hey, look, I'm getting out of here. Tilden ain't the only guy who's not... Sit down, Brightstone. 
All right, you jokers, prove any part of it. We're going to try to. I'd like to know how. We got a team out right now checking the neighborhood of both robberies. If anybody saw your car around those stores yesterday afternoon, you got trouble. I got news for you guys. It don't matter where I was yesterday, you can't tie me into these jobs. We'll see. Matter of fact, I'll give you a hand. I might have been driving around those stores yesterday. Is that right? Yeah, come to think of it, I went for a ride along about 2 o'clock. Slipped my mind before it. Sure. Not that I know where Tilden pulled his heist. You don't, huh? Sure, of course not. Then what makes you think you were in the vicinity? Well, I'm not saying I was. I'm saying I might have been. Yeah. Just where were you? Who knows? It took me a real long drive. What time did you leave your hotel? Two o'clock, maybe. What time did you get back? Later. How much later? <laughs> All right. I-, I tell you what, I'm going to give you guys a break. Good. Now, I know you can keep this up for 72 hours, and I got more important things to do, so let's get it over with, okay? That's entirely up to you. Okay. Okay. Tilton was giving it to you square. He was just a pigeon. Dumbest pigeon I ever ran into. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's it. You got it now. What are you going to do about it? What do you think? Oh, if you're smart, you're going to turn me loose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, let me give you a little advice. Free. So Tilden was a fall guy, all right? I admit it to you guys. Yeah. But to nobody else. <laughs> Anybody else asked me, I deny it, the whole thing. So you might as well play smart. You figure on sticking me with this rap, you got to have a signed confession. I ain't going to give it to you. Well, now, maybe we won't need it. Boy, you got the biggest rocks in your head. Tilden was in those stores. I wasn't. He took the money. I didn't. You go into court, you come out looking dumber than he does. Mm-hmm. It's my word against his. You think anybody in their right mind is going to believe this boy? You think he's got a chance of convincing the jury? Well, he might. <laughs> Fat chance. He convinced us. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On January 8th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. The district attorney failed to issue a complaint against Harvey Tilden. James Hill Brightstone was tried and convicted of robbery in the second degree, two counts. Robbery in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state prison for not less than one year. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Rodman, Virginia Gregg, Eddie Firestone. Script by Frank Burt. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. A courageous chaplain, honored as Mr. Citizen, thwarts a prison break and converts a juvenile delinquent to a new way of life. Don't miss Mr. Citizen this week. Check your local TV listings for time and station. Hear Dragnet next week, same time, same station. Hear Biography and Sound on the NBC Radio Network. June the 14th, 1955, was the date that that episode of Dragnet, entitled The Big Fall Guy, was originally broadcast on NBC. June 15th would have been about the time school got out for the summer in uh, Southern California. We never got out in May. We always got out usually the second week in June. Hmm. 
I don't know, the rest of the country just fell behind. I was talking to one of the uh, administrators here at our local school district, though, and I asked him why they started putting school back in session so early in the summer, because it's so hot. Of course, now, finally, schools are getting air-conditioned. School buses aren't, for the most part. But he told me the reason why was they tried to end the first semester at Christmas break. He said they had too many complaints about parents uh, who had kids on Christmas break that had to study for finals because they would no more get back on January 2nd or January 3rd, and usually two or three days later they would have finals, and the semester would usually end about January 14th or 15th. So by uh, moving it back a couple of weeks, they they could eliminate that. I guess that makes sense, but man, it seems strange to have kids going to school in the middle of August, especially when it's hot, hot. On that episode of Dragnet, I really appreciate Vic Rodman. Uh, he had that great interview at the beginning there as the storekeeper, and he played on Dragnet a lot and often played that same sort of flustered character who wanted to show Friday and and uh, Smith how much he knew and sort of put them in their place, sort of talked down to them. A great character, and he he played almost that same character uh, time and time again on Dragnet, both on the radio and uh, and on television as well. More Dragnet coming up in the weeks ahead. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> Well, if you're ready to laugh, we've got a very good episode of Halls of Ivy coming up now. I'm always hesitant to call this a comedy because it's not exactly a comedy, but then it is, I guess. Very sophisticated comedy, I I would have to say that. This is one of the best episodes of Halls of Ivy, I think, that uh, was recorded. And the reason I say that isn't because it has a stellar storyline. In fact, the storyline is almost non-existent. There's very little here in the way of plot, but there's wonderfully delicious conversations between Professor Hall and Victoria Hall, and it is just just makes you smile. I love it when Toddy goes back and recollects when they first met in England. They do that tonight, and it's very just heartwarming, makes you feel good. The way Victoria steps in at the end is just so typical. There's a couple places in here. Benita Hume was so good. There's a couple places where she laughs, just laughs out loud, yet it doesn't sound like she's acting. It sounds like she's legitimately laughing. And it's it's just wonderful. That's all I can say. This was one of the best shows ever produced in the old days of radio. They they were going to make a movie out of this. And uh, I was... uh, sad to read recently that Benita Hume didn't want to do the movie. And they were going to use Greer Garson. And Greer Garson might have been pretty good, but she was no Benita Hume. 
The original pilot of this had Gail Gordon in the role of uh, Professor Hall. And it was pretty good, but boy, Ronald Coleman just stole this. And the chemistry between these two was just tremendous. Okay, I'm talking too much. Let's just go back to February the 3rd in 1950. And this episode of the Halls of Ivy is entitled Dr. Bromley, Shakespeare Expert. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. If you like good beer, you'll find it pays to be curious and learn about Schlitz for yourself. And now, the Halls of Ivy. That surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far away. Welcome again to Ivy, Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. The last class of the day has been dismissed, and both students and faculty are relaxing. In the home of Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, president of Ivy, and his wife, formerly a shining light of the London stage, Dr. Hall is lying on the couch, and Mrs. Hall is sitting on the floor beside him, going over the afternoon mail, which arrived a few minutes ago. And here's the last of the lot. It's an invitation to tea. What reply shall I make? Mm, what does it say? On Saturday the 16th, Mrs. Millicent Foster will be at home between four and six. Dr. William Hall, likewise. <laughs> That's rather a crisp refusal, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, to someone as rich as Mrs. Foster. Now, what happens to a college president who misses a chance to wangle an endowment? Well, the established procedure, I believe, calls for his board of governors to form a hollow square, snip off his buttons, and drum him out of the service. Unless, of course, he can prove it was not his fault. If he can do that, then the board naturally takes that into consideration. I see. What do they do then? Well, then they um, form a hollow square, snip off his buttons, and drum him out of the service. <laughs> and he and his wife are never... No, just rub my back a little. No, no, a bit, a bit to the left. Left. That's it. Ah. <laughs> And he and his wife are never again seen in academic circles. They become uh, flotsam and jetsam on the stream of life. Mm. You know, I think you ought to accept Mrs. Foster's invitation. She's apt to be very receptive to your ideas about building ivy. Well, why should she be? I've never even met her. Have you forgotten what that magazine article said about you last week? Toddy, your cheesecake. Oh, no, Victoria, now. What was that line? Um... No ineffectual intellectual he. Oh, Victoria. And that caption beneath the photograph. Sexy Prexy. <laughs> uh, Victoria, please. Uh, the tone of that article was entirely incommensurate. The article with the... contained a great deal of truth. 
that the tone of that article was entirely... Toddy, face it. You're an attractive human being. The tone of that... Well, anyway, it's nice to have you think so. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Girls must always have found you attractive. And tell me that before you met me, you never dilly-dallied. Uh, dillied, perhaps, Victoria, but I never dallied. <laughs> but I think we might bring this discussion of my personal charms to a close by accepting Mrs. Foster's invitation to tea. There. One moment while I note it down. There. No hollow square for you. Your regimental buttons are quite safe. Well, as far as we know. However, I think... The... Oh, answer the phone, will you, Victoria? Mm, certainly, if I can find it. Oh, this happens every time. That phone is never twice in the same now, place. Oh, now, Toddy, it'll turn up Let sooner or later. Sight for one moment and off its campus on a frolic of its own. <laughs> it's not under the coffee table. Uh, never mind, Victoria, I see it. Where? On the telephone table, of all places. <laughs> Dr. Hall speaking. Oh, yes, good afternoon, Mr. Merriweather. This is an unexpected pla... With whom? Oh, I, I've never met him, but of course his reputation. Oh, yes, by all means, do. Goodbye. Mr. Merriweather, he's on his way over. Oh, good. I adore Mr. Merriweather. I wish all the members of the Board of Governors were like him. Did I tell you what he said to me last time he visited? As he was leaving, he pinched my cheek, looked deeply into my eyes, sighed an enormous sigh and said, Gad, ma'am, what I wouldn't give to be 70 again. <laughs> Uh, Chester Bromley is with him. Chester Bromley. I don't think I know him. Well, he's perhaps the greatest authority on Shakespeare since Kittredge of Harvard. And one of the finest pedagogues this country has ever produced. I wonder what Merriweather has on his mind. Do you suppose the board is displeased about something? Oh, no point fretting, Toddy. Think about something else. Tell me more about Dr. Bromley. He's the best kind of academician. He has real love for his subject and... What is even more admirable, he can communicate his enthusiasm and fire to his students. He may want to reopen the whole matter of breakage in the physics lab. Dr. Bromley? No, dear, Mr. Merriweather. He, he can't seem to understand that with the increased emphasis on the sciences, expenses are bound to mount. Ah, I wish we could have him here at Ivy permanently. Mr. Merriweather? No, darling, Dr. Bromley. He's, oh. uh, he's unearthed more truth about his subject matter than any other researcher in the field. I, I don't suppose you know there's no foundation whatsoever to the story that he was horse-whipped for poaching deer when a boy. Dr. Bromley or Mr. Merriweather? William Shakespeare. He's on third. Who's on third? Who's on first? I could use a cup of tea. Well, it's very confusing, the whole thing. Philip! You know, it's only recently that Bromley has received the recognition he deserves. Most of his life, he taught at third-rate schools throughout the country. Not until Oxford invited him to lecture did the academic world realize what a great man he really is. Did you call, Mum? Yes, sir, before for tea. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, one moment, Penny. Toddy, did you know Penny was born and bred in Shakespeare's hometown? Really? Stratford-on-Avon? Mm -hmm. oh, you, you must know quite a good deal about him. Oh, yes. Couldn't help but learn what we'd been raised there. I could tell you ever so many things. Oh, go ahead. I'm very interested. Well, for one thing, he was English. <laughs> yes, I, I have heard some such rumour. And he wrote plays. 
<laughs> you did keep your ears open, didn't you? I haven't read any of the plays, of course, but an uncle of mine did, and he spoke very highly of them. Penny, <laughs> Shakespeare was one of the greatest masters of the English language who ever lived. Well, I can understand your being impressed by that, being a Yank. But I've been speaking the English language all my life. <laughs> you certainly have. And, oh, let me see. Oh, yes. He's dead. Oh, that's too bad. Well, thank you very much, Penny. Oh, don't mention it, sir, any time at all. Oh, excuse me, sir, the door. <laughs> Sorry, dear. I'm afraid Penny didn't help much. No, I wouldn't say that she had made my regimental buttons any more secure, but it was a good try, Vicky. <laughs> Dottie, quick, before Dr. Bromley comes in, tell me more about him so I can talk to him. Well, one of the things he did was to clear up the mystery of the second best bed. The second best bed? Yes, you see, Shakespeare was quite wealthy when he died, and yet, in his will, he left his wife only his second best bed. Scholars speculated for years about that. Yeah, I bet the neighbors did, too. Uh, yes, Penny. And Mr. Merriweather, sir. Oh, thank you, Penny. Good afternoon, Mr. Merriweather. Hello, Hall. Good to see you again. More than good to see you, ma'am. Oh, thank you, Mr. Merriweather. You're looking very fit. I'm uh, feeling very fit. Winked at a pretty girl this morning. She winked right back. <laughs> Thing like that's a tonic to a man my age. <laughs> Well, isn't, uh, isn't Dr. Bromley with you? Oh, he'll be here later. He's inspecting the library. I couldn't wait to have a business appointment a little later. Dr. Hall, I have good news. I've got Bromley on the verge of joining our faculty. No. Yes, yes. I was introduced to him. Remember that opening in the English department? Decided he was the one to fill it. Well, that's wonderful. How in the world did you manage? I've heard he's turned down scores of offers. Well, simply reasoned with the man. Look here, I said, and so on and so on and so on. Yes, he answered, but what about this and that? Well, it's all very good, I said, but it carries no weight whatsoever when you take such and such into consideration. <laughs> and that clinched it. Yes, I, I can see where it would. It's a very potent argument. Anyway, I persuaded him to visit Ivy for a few hours, and all you have to do is wind up the deal. But I still don't understand. Surely some of the positions he's rejected carry much larger salaries than anything we can offer. Well, he mentioned that, but he added it was no criterion. He seems to place all the weight on the fact that not one of the college presidents with whom he's spoken since his return from Oxford could answer a very simple question. Not one. Shocking, don't you think? I should be very interested in knowing what the question is. Uh, what was it again? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, what was William Shakespeare like personally? <laughs> Just tell him that and he's ours. Oh, Mr. Merriweather, let me assure you that is not a simple question. I've no idea why Dr. Bromley would accept or reject a post on such a fantastic basis, but, but no one has ever answered that question to anyone else's satisfaction. We, we have no way of knowing what Shakespeare thought or felt about anything. Oh, I don't agree. Now, what about that line in... Uh... I forget which play, where, uh, what's his name, says, uh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, and so on. Yes, well, that line notwithstanding, one cannot deduce the bard's personality from his work any more than one can tell uh, what sort of a man Henry Ford was by examining a Model T. Well, I'm stunned by what you tell me, Hall. I'm only a layman, but even I know something about him. 
He was an excellent businessman, shrewd market manipulator. Well, now, he... from which of his plays did you get that information, Mr. Merriweather? Uh, Mrs. Hall, I appeal to you. No, please don't. I don't know anything about him. Never even had a walk-on in one of his plays. He wrote in so few dance routines. Uh, I don't know what to say. Why, I have already telegraphed the other members of the board. We'd signed up, Bromley. Wasn't that a trifle hasty, Mr. Merriweather? Well, I suppose it was, but I've always had such confidence in your ability. Till now. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but... Uh... Under the circumstances, it's unavoidable. Yeah, I suppose so. I'll try to make that very clear to the rest of the board. Well, must be going. I'll inform you of Bromley's decision as soon as I've talked to him. It's hardly worth the trouble, is it? Oh, good afternoon, ma'am. Good afternoon. Oh, uh, one moment, doctor. Uh, what is it? Your sleeve. Allow me. One of your buttons. Hanging by a thread. Good day. <laughs> to be ready to answer Dr. Bromley's question. That's what's troubling Dr. Hall, as he says... How the devil should I know what Shakespeare is like personally? Merriweather is no reason to expect I should. If at my age I must be a quiz kid, at least let the questions be some... Yes, what is it, Penny? Uh, Nothing, sir. I've only brought the tea. You did say tea for four, didn't you, miss? Yes, I did, but... Uh, Because I was wondering whether there's enough hot water. There is indeed. Plenty of hot water. Plenty. Uh, Professor Hall? Uh, Yes? Regarding what we was talking about before, Shakespeare, I've remembered something else. They referred to him as the Bird of Avon. (laughs) (laughs) They may may shortly shortly refer to me as the Dead Pigeon of Ivy. Thank you, Penny. That'll be all. Yes, sir. Would you like some tea now, Toddy? Oh, I think we'd better wait for Bromley. He's certainly taking his time about it, isn't he? Well, after all, life around a college is always leisurely. Yes, it is. Are you ever sorry you married into such a life? Don't you sometimes find it boring? Toddy, let me tell you something. Before we met, I'd been proposed to by a big game hunter, a test pilot and a chemist doing research in high explosives. And frankly, compared to the pickles in which you find yourself, I suspect any of them would have been good and dull. (laughs) I don't think I'm in such a bad predicament this time, Victoria. It's only that it may be one of the straws piling up to the one that breaks the camel's back. I never know when the members of the board may start sharpening their snippers and licking their chops with eagerness. Mm, You're getting very careless with your similes, Toddy. Or are they metaphors? Uh, metaphors, dear. Oh, but that little touch about licking their chops, masterly, I call that. Oh, it's nothing really. It just came to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say there's little to worry about. Let them fire you if they like. Um, a, a less cavalier approach to the matter, Vicky, if you don't mind. No, I mean it. Let them. I know who'd regret it first. Oh, so do I. It's a buyer's market in college presidents. I have no desire to glut it. <laughs> but over and above that, Sentimental though it may sound, I love Ivy. And I'm very keen on my job. 
My father went to Ivy. His father went to Ivy. My great-grandfather went to Harvard. Really? And sent his son to Ivy? Well, you, you know how it is. A man always wants his children to have the good things in life he himself has missed. <laughs> the devil is Bromley. Have you any idea what you'll say to him when he does arrive? About Shakespeare, I mean. Oh, I shall have to answer his question in some fashion if he asks it. Of course, I've always had a conception of Shakespeare. I've thought of him as someone who was very happy in his work, extremely interested in people, and a man who might have dedicated his life to a cause worthy of his efforts. Mm. Is it so very important that Ivy get this Professor Bromley? I mean, is it worth all this fuss? If he were just another run-of-the-class professor, my dear, I'd say no. But this man is one of the torchbearers of learning, one of the inspired teachers, a man with a gift of communication. Men like him, who shamefully underpaid and unrecognized beyond their own academic horizons, are still the glory of those colleges lucky enough to have them. They're the ones who are remembered down the years with affection and gratitude by the students. And if he's that kind, well, I hope we snag him. Oh, if you decide you want him, dear, I'm sure you will. Yes, I know, but it's a little late in the day to lay out any involved strategy. Well, you're not much of a campaigner anyway, Toddy. I always think of you more as, um... Spur of the moment, man. Oh, you're quite wrong, my darling. Don't, don't let my apparent impulsiveness deceive you. Compared to me, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli was a witless blunderer. Oh. <laughs> Do you remember the first time I kissed you? Yeah. But you didn't kiss me. I kissed you. Oh, oh no, you're, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> I remember it very clearly because it was the culmination of a campaign the like of which for planning and preparation had not been seen since Austerlitz. <laughs> that picnic we had on the river near Pangbourne, remember? Mm. The major tactical problem was how to get you in my arms. But we never seemed to be alone long enough in London. So I invited you to a picnic. And no sooner had we gotten out of the car and strolled down to the river through a herd of cows to feed the swans... Remember to bring the crumbs for the swans? Three bags full. Now, it's rather rocky here. Be, be, be careful. Oh, well, I'm careful. I can... Ooh. Oh, dear. What happened? Twist your ankle? Yes. Afraid I have a bit. See if you can stand on it. Yeah. No, I can't. Well, sit down here on this stump. No, I have a show to do tonight. I'd better have a doctor take a look at it as soon as possible. Would you mind terribly if we went back to town? You mean right now? Yes. Oh, no. No, of course I don't mind. Well, let me lean on you. I'll, I'll hop. No, don't be silly. I'll, I'll carry you. Like this. Oh, don't you think I'll be too heavy? Not in the least. Do <laughs> you think I'm a weakling? Oh, no. This is delightful. You're sure I'm not too heavy? I can feel your heart beating. Uh, not because you're too heavy, believe me. <laughs> I've... I've never been this close to you before. What's that scent you're wearing? It's wonderfully heady. Just me. Oh, I never heard of it. Oh, you mean it's you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Don't you want me to put, to put me down and take a breather? No, you're light as a feather, really. Yes, I, I'm enjoying this enormously. Funny I never noticed that spray of freckles across your nose. Do you like it? The freckles or the nose? Oh, a combination. Yeah, very much. And the face that goes with it. <laughs> nice coloring all over it. 
I think your coloring's getting a trifle high. You'd better put me... You, you know, it's only a few steps more to the car. You sound very relieved. But, but I'm, I'm not. I, I would like this to, to go on forever. Uh, may not get a chance to hold you again. You may not live to do it unless you put me down. <laughs> oh, please, put me down. Uh, very well, if you prefer. Uh, there. Oh, and for heaven's sake, sit down beside me. Thank you. Believe me, I will. Professor you're a knight in shining armor, but you don't have to kill yourself to prove it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I wish you could see your face. It is funny the way things worked out. I, I plan a picnic, and it's over in five minutes. I attempt gallantry and lose my wind. And just as you were about to kiss me, weren't you? Now, I'm offered a kiss and you can't catch my breath. <laughs> Never mind, Professor Hall. I'll wait. I'll wait until the cows come home. Ah, what a lovely sound. I'm surprised no one has written a symphony around the cowbell. Well, that isn't a cowbell, Toddy. That's the doorbell. Well, why should a cow ring a ring? A... Oh, oh, the doorbell. <laughs> yes, yes. I must have been daydreaming again <laughs> and didn't quite finish it. You, you owe me a kiss. I do, sir? <laughs> you were speaking to me, Penny. Oh, oh excuse me. Uh, Dr. Brumley to see you, sir. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, won't you come in, doctor? Thank you. How do you do? Victoria, may I introduce Dr. Bromley? Dr. Bromley, my wife. How do you do, Mrs. Hall? So nice of you to call a penny, the gentleman's coat and hat. No, please. I have a taxi waiting outside. I can only spend a few minutes. Oh, that's too bad. I had hoped you might stay longer. Much, much longer. Several years, perhaps? Yes. I don't mind telling you it would be quite a feather in Ivy's cap to have you on the faculty. Thank you. And I don't mind telling you, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> I trust I don't appear immodest. It's only that I've recently acquired a fair idea of my own worth. You see, the past few months, I've received 53 offers to decorate some school's bonnet. Oh, it'd be foolish to pretend ignorance of the fact that you're greatly in demand. Only recently. For 31 years of my career, the shoe was on the other foot. Dr. Hall... You know the tons of application papers an unknown professor fills out in 31 years of job hunting? <laughs> State name, age, degrees, colleges, previous positions, salary, academic honors, administrative abilities. Well, we, we can't expect to be taken on when they don't know anything about us. Well, that's very true. I appreciate that. But you can't expect me not to enjoy the turning of the tables now that I've acquired the statue that permits me to ask the questions. Yes, yeah, I'm beginning to understand what was Shakespeare like personally, eh? Mr. Merriweather told you that, did he? Well, can you answer it? Um... Uh, tell Dr. Bromley what you've always said, William. That Shakespeare was a man who felt he'd never received the honors due to one who stood at the top of his profession. Uh, this colored his entire life. Um, Victoria, uh, I... How in the world did you know? Dr. Hall, that's precisely the conclusion I've reached. 
after half a lifetime of intense study. How in the world did you know? You mean, you... Be, why? It's obvious. <laughs> you, you, you take my breath away. I, I should like to discuss this matter further with you. How about letting me stay for dinner tonight? Oh, but of course. Please stay. Just let me go outside and dismiss my taxi. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Excuse me, Toddy. I want to tell Penny there'll be three for dinner. No, no, wait, wait, wait. Victoria, how the devil did you know the answer? What, what do you know about Shakespeare? All I know about Shakespeare, Toddy, is that Sir Lawrence Olivier did a lovely job with Hamlet. Yes, I know. But you but see, it... I do know a little about people. When I heard Mr. Merriweather describe him as a businessman, which Mr. Merriweather is... And you describe him as a man who loved his work, which you do. It occurred to me that Dr. Bromley might also see him as a man very like himself. That's all. Excuse me, I simply must tell you. No, 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 one, one, one minute, Vicky. I, I want you to say all that again. Yeah, well, later, Toddy. Why don't you phone and see if you can reach Mr. Merriweather with the good news? I will. I'll be back with you in a few minutes. Hello. Hello, Mr. Merriweather. Dr. Hall, I wanted you to know that through your initiative and Mrs. Hall's uh, great knowledge of the classics, uh, Dr. Bromley has decided to join our faculty. Yes, yes, I am extremely gratified. <coughs> Anything I have done is, as my students would say, strictly off the cuff. Uh, which reminds me, Mr. Merriweather, remember that loose button on my cuff? I fixed it. was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Darling, you signed him up. I knew you'd do it. Uh, my dear girl, like most men, I am capable of some amazing self-delusions, but not on this score. I know who gave Bromley the answer which convinced him that Ivy was his spiritual home. Isn't it awful the way I keep butting in? Was it Shakespeare or Dr. Hall who said, a man proposes, but woman disposes? I'm sure I don't know. Why? Oh, I was just thinking that since I proposed to you, my darling, my life has been so well disposed. Well, <laughs> thank you, dear. And not at all, darling. Good night, everyone. Good night. week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Willard Waterman, Gloria Gordon, and William Johnstone. Tonight's script was written by Walter Brown Newman and Don Quinn. The music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Ken Carpenter speaking. That surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far away. 
Next, hear We the People over most of these same NBC stations. Well, as the chimes just told you, that uh, that show was originally broadcast on NBC. That was the Halls of Ivy. And that episode was from February the 3rd in 1950, and it was entitled Dr. Bromley, Shakespeare Expert. See what I was talking about with the magic between those two? Oh, they were so good. I loved them on the Benny Show, and I particularly loved them on the Halls of Ivy. And they had such great supporting players, too. Don Quinn was so good with that. He did it for years with Deborah McGee and Molly. I, I just laugh at the way he took basically the same recipe that he used for Fibber McGee and Molly and used it in Halls of Ivy, except he made it more sophisticated. You know, all the wordplay all of a sudden becomes very sophisticated. It was like he probably had thought about this for years as he was writing uh, Fibber scripts and thought, well, I can't use that. Fibber wouldn't say that or Doc wouldn't say that, but he could do it on the Halls of Ivy. Just, oh, so good, so good. I loved uh, Maid, Penny who obviously came over with uh, Victoria from England. Then later they had another maid that was just hilarious. Remember, she was had been in the army. She ran the household like a boot camp. Oh, funny. So funny. A lot of running jokes in there about the can't find the phone. I remember that when I was a kid, having uh, phones with those long, long extension cords so you could move them around the house. And am I right? Didn't sometimes the phone only ring at a bell on the wall? Because my first thought was when you hear the phone ring and you can't find the phone, you'd think, well, just go to where it's ringing. But I think a lot, I think back then it was very common for the, for the bell to be on a wall outlet. And that's the only place it would ring. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. Any of you that have long memories, but I I love the uh, bit with Penny where they're talking about Shakespeare. And she's from Stratford-on-Avon. So she knows oh, quite a bit about, about William Shakespeare. Yeah, she knows that he, uh, he, he was English, <laughs> that, that he wrote plays. And although she hadn't read any, she heard they were, heard they were pretty good. <laughs> Shakespeare was a uh, subject of one of uh, Chester's old monologues on Gunsmoke one time, and it was it was pretty good too. I remember Chester said something like, uh, "He didn't speak English too good, <laughs> Be, because he was a foreigner." That's what it was. Very funny. Mm. Very very talented, clever people wrote these shows, and uh, we can even sit back here now, fifty sixty years later, and still appreciate them. All right, I got a really nice email I wanted to share. By the way. Uh, I really love it when you guys send me emails, and I, I get uh, quite a few. You know, I don't get thousands, but I'll, I'll get a few each week or so. You can always email me. Uh, my address is bob at boomerboulevard.com. And uh, it's just that easy. Boulevard is spelled out, B-O-U-L-E-V-A-R-D, Boulevard, boomerboulevard.com. And I'll get your email, and I, uh, I love getting them. But anyway, I got one from a young lady by the name of Paula in Birmingham, Alabama. And she told me that she and her boyfriend, Mark, and several other kids get together every two weeks to listen to the show. And get this, they're in high school. They're seniors in high school down there in Birmingham. 
And thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. She says, Dear Bob, just wanted you to know how much we enjoy your show. My boyfriend Mark and I get together with several other kids, and we listen to your show every other week when the new show comes out. She says, We love your stories, especially about growing up in California. She says, I can just imagine that you had a lot of fun growing up. Well, I guess I did. Thank you, Paula. She said that you had mentioned once something about telling a story about the first time you asked a girl to dance. Could you tell that story again? I I don't... Maybe I did tell the story one time. Uh, Boy, it would have been several years ago. Well, first time I asked a girl to dance, that's a little deceiving. Uh, obviously, when you're in elementary school, you'd have square dancing and that sort of thing. I remember going to a, a dance class. It was one Friday night a month, I think, uh, when I was in seventh grade. And it was like ballroom dancing. And there, but there, I think you were assigned a partner. I don't think we ever had to go across the room and ask a girl to dance. I think we were assigned partners. That was on Friday nights. I, I might have mentioned that one of our instructors was Bobby Burgess, who was one of the original Mouseketeers. That was Call's dance studio in, on, on Long Beach Boulevard in Long Beach. But it was sort of a rite of passage every kid went through. But I, I guess the first time I actually wanted to dance with a girl and worked up the nerve was at Friday Nighters, which was a dance that was sponsored by Hughes Junior High School one Friday night a month in the auditorium. I think it probably went from seven to nine. You know, they would dim the lights in the gymnasium and they would uh, play records. They they would have a, a group of students play records. And, of course, the popular kids were, were always dancing. But tell you what, let me let me just play one song to kind of get you in the mood. This is the kind of music that uh, that we they used to play at uh, at Friday nighters. I can't. 
I cannot hide. quintessential Friday Nighters tune. I mean, that sets the mood, okay? If you ever saw the movie American Graffiti, that was about high schoolers, seniors graduating from high school in 1962. Well, in 1962, I was in the ninth grade, but the dance that they had in that movie was just exactly what I'm trying to describe. And the music in that film was uh, was the same music that we were playing because it was the same year. That, of course, was George Lucas's story. He grew up in Northern California. I was in Southern California, but I'll tell you that the dress, the way the kids dressed in that movie was exactly the way we were dressing in 62. Okay, so there we are in the Hughes Junior High School gym. Well, there was a girl in several of my classes named Rena who I just thought was cute. And I'd always wanted to work up the nerve to call her, you know, ask her for a phone number and call her. But you see, there was this tremendous fear of rejection. I know it's got to be tough on a girl, wondering if some guy's ever going to call her. But boy, it's rough on a guy, too, to, to work up the nerve, you know, to ask somebody if you can call her. Because you're just so sure she's going to say, no, I'd rather you didn't, you know? So I was with these friends of mine, and none of them had worked up the nerve to ask anybody to dance. And this, we had probably been there for a good hour. So there's a lot of girls, you know, standing over by the the bleachers on one section and the guys in the other, and they're playing the music. And there's always, you know, several couples that are out dancing, but there's a lot more that aren't, right? And finally, uh, this this song played. And I thought to myself, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. As a guy, you understand that almost every girl over there that's not dancing is hoping that somebody will come over and ask her to dance. But the big fear is that she doesn't want you to come over and ask her to dance, right? You know, you really have to work up your nerve, especially if you're kind of naturally shy. So I remember a couple of times starting over there and then turning back. And then finally this song played and I said, I'm going to go over there and ask her to dance. And I finally worked up the courage. And she's sitting there and you see her watching you when you realize that she thinks that you're going to be approaching her. And finally, I went over and I said, Hi, Rena, would you like to dance? And she said, Yes. And this was the song that was playing the first time I ever asked a girl to dance. Mm-hmm. 
So there you go, Paula, and what I would like you and Mark to do is I would like you to uh, play that song again and dance to it. Would you do that for me? And I just can't tell you what a pleasure it is to think that young people are enjoying uh, some of our stories uh, from the 50s and the 60s, and that means a lot to me.
that music takes me back, doesn't it you? I'm going back like 140 years. Wait, I'm in some strange land. Oh, there's a sign over here. K-A-N-S-A-S, Kansas. We're in Kansas. Oh, it's an old western town. It's Dodge City, Kansas, everybody. <laughs> it's time for Gunsmoke. Time to walk down Front Street, that dusty, dirty street filled with all of the cowpokes that came off the trail, leading their herds of cattle into Dodge City's railhead to be shipped back east. Yeah, it is time for Gunsmoke. And walking down the streets with Matt Dillon and Chester and Kitty and Doc and the whole gang. Hey, I have an episode that I have never played on the air before. I'm beginning to think that I have done something wrong with my record keeping. Now, let me explain. I listen to Gunsmoke all the time. So if I'm in the car or sometimes even laying in bed, I will listen to episodes of Gunsmoke. So I, I hear these all the time. I mean, I probably listen to the entire run of Gunsmoke at least once a year. So all of the shows are familiar to me, but I forget from time to time what I've played, what I have it, And I thought I had played pretty much everything from the early 50s. But this is one it looks like I have not played. And it's a good one. It features John Daner in a very nasty role, Sam Edwards and Helen Klebe. Helen Klebe. Now, if you don't know who that is, you might want to Google her. But I can save you some time. She played Miss Mamie Baldwin one of the uh, Baldwin sisters on the Waltons. And that show ran from 1972 to 1981. Now, the episode of Gunsmoke we are going to listen to tonight was from 1954. Now, Helen Cleve was born in 1907, so now I'm throwing a bunch of numbers at you to confuse me. But that means she was about 47 when she made this episode of Gunsmoke, and then it would have been 18 years later. So she was around 65 when she first started playing was it 57, 60? Yeah, about 65 when she first started playing on the Waltons. And then that show was on for close to 10 years, I guess. But she is really good. She did a lot of radio work and a lot of the uh, shows on the early days of TV. A lot of times in Gunsmoke, she played a very sensible woman. And she did. She was not an old lady when Gunsmoke was recorded. So she doesn't play old lady roles. And she, she did one uh, a couple weeks ago that we played. Remember where the... Um, the woman from the east, from Boston, had been captured by the Indians, and she had a daughter by the chief. And the name of the show was the daughter's name. I can't think of what it is right off. But she was so good in that episode, and she's good in this one tonight. There, there's a quality to her voice. It's really great. And it's a lot different than, than the Mamie Baldwin. All right, so here we go. This episode of Gunsmoke was originally broadcast on January the 9th, in 1954. And... It, it really, again, this is, is an adult western, folks. You wouldn't hear a plot like this on Hopalong Castle. The name of this episode is The Jokes on Us. And you'll understand as soon as you hear it. Around Dodge City and in the territory on west... There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. 
Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Bring his horse over here, Benson. Sure, Jake. Wait till we get him up on his horse before you tie that rope, Duval. There'd be too much slack otherwise. Yeah. It couldn't hang you very good with your feet touching the ground, could we, Tillman? No, Jake, you couldn't. We've been neighbors a long time, Tillman. If I could figure some way to make the noose bust your neck, I'd do it for you. It's all right. But you get to hanging, I could put a bullet in you. I'd be beholden to you. Okay, I'll do it then. Would you drop by and tell my wife on your way home, Jake? Sure. I figured on doing that anyway. Thanks. I always liked you, Tillman. It's kind of too bad about this. You're mighty calm for a man with a noose around his neck. You men got your minds made up. Well, we can't have no man stealing horses around here. Would none of us feel safe less than we caught and hung them? I reckon I'd feel the same way, Jake. Of course you would. You'd hang me just as fast if I'd done it. I would. Only difference is I'd want to be awful sure it was you that done it. Oh, I'm sure. Heck, we caught you red-handed, didn't we? Told you a hundred times I found them horses running wild. I was driving them back to you. Now, Tillman, you was headed in the other direction. He got away from me. I was trying to turn him back. Except we don't believe you. None of us do. Well, ask Jennings. He saw me rounding them up for you. Jennings ain't here. But why don't you find him? Can't take the time. You delay a hanging, the first thing you know, the man's got loose. It'd just encourage horse thieving. Like I said, you got your minds made up. We gotta protect ourselves, Tillman. Here's his horse, Jake. Get him out of Tillman. Sure. Okay, Duval. Take up the slack and tie it. Hey, hey, look out there, Jake. Someone's coming. So they are. Let's get this done. We might have trouble. He's a long way off yet. We got time. You want to slap his horse, Benson? No. You do it, Jake. Okay. So long, Tillman. So long. (laughs) 
Hello, Jay. Hello, Miss Tillman. Come on inside. Oh, thanks, ma'am. I'll stay out here. Suit yourself. My husband ain't here, Jake. He's out in the prairie someplace. I know. Clave's around, though. Want to see him? No. I wanted to see you. Me? What about? About your husband, Miss Tillman. Something's happened to him. Well, it was like this, ma'am. You know, me and Duval and Benson's been losing some horses lately. I heard. But Tillman ain't, somehow. And when we caught him driving a bunch of mine this afternoon, we figured it was him who's been stealing them. I don't believe it. My husband's an honest man. I know that. Now, Jennings saw him rounding them up where he found them running wild on the prairie. I guess whoever had stolen them got scared and left them there. Where's my husband, Jake? That's what I want to explain to you, ma'am. Jennings come and told us about it. But he got there too late. Too... Too late? We'd already hung him. Hung him? Yes, ma'am. Clabe! Clabe, come out here! What is it, Ma? Well, hello there, Jake. Hello, Clabe. Tell him what you done, Jake. Done? Clabe, we hung your old man this afternoon. You what? We hung him for stealing horses. Pa? They found out he didn't do it. After. Yeah. I guess the joke's on us, all right. Wait, Ma. He's kind of upset, Clabe. You better go with her. Somebody ought to kill you, Jake. Now, don't talk like that. I said we were sorry. I got to get home. It's kind of late. So long. Cheer up, Matt. Spring will be here in a few months. Yeah, sure. You're still bothered by the Tillman hanging, aren't you? He was lynched, Kitty. All right, lynched. You'll never find out who did it now. That was nearly three weeks ago. Well, I got a pretty good idea who did it. That I can't be sure. No? Who? Probably some of the ranchers out there who've been losing horses. Benson and Duval and Jake Kaiser in particular. Benson? I heard he got shot the other night, right in his own house. Yeah, I did. Just a week ago. Maybe his conscience was bothering him, Matt. No? What do you mean? Well, maybe the other two killed him to keep him from talking. Uh, maybe. Well, anyway, he had it coming to him. It's still murder, Kitty. You feel worse about Tillman, don't you? There's nothing I hate more than a lynching. And knowing Tillman, my guess is he was completely innocent. What about Mrs. Tillman and the boy? Do they have any ideas? Well, if they have, they didn't tell me. 
Well, you've done all you can, Matt. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I might as well be in St. Louis. Huh? I like St. Louis, Matt. Well, why don't you go, then? I don't know. I guess I'm afraid of the dark. What? What are you talking about? Never mind, Matt. Oh, Matt. Oh, hello, Doc. Oh, hello, Kitty. Sit down, Doc. Oh, thank you. Yeah, don't mind if I do it. See that fella Duval, Matt? Yeah, what about it? He's over in my office. What? Oh, what for? He's been shot, Matt. Shot. Dead. What? His hired hand brought him in. What did this happen? Well, early tonight he said, you know, it's a funny thing, Matt. Duval was shot through the window of his house with a 50 caliber rifle. I dug the bullet out. Just like Benson. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting myself. That makes Jake Kaiser the only one left, Matt. Why, you think Jake did it? I don't know. Well, he's been sitting right over there in a card game since noon. Uh, are you sure of that, Kitty? Well, I was gone for an hour, but he was there when I left, and he was there when I got back. Well, he couldn't have done it in an hour, Matt. No. Look, Matt, he's leaving. Yeah, uh, excuse me. I'll be right back. Oh, uh, Jake. Hello, Marshal. Uh, Jake, uh, let's sit down a minute, huh? I, I want to talk to you. Sure, Marshal. What's it about? Uh, here's the table. Kind of late getting out home. Uh, Jake, Duval was shot tonight. He was? Yeah. Killed the same way Benson was. Same way? Uh huh. You, uh, know anything about it? I'm beginning to, Marshal. Is that Tillman boy, Clabe? I know it is. Why would he do it, Jake? Oh, he's crazy, that's why. Marshal, I'll tell you. Clabes took it into his head that we hung his old man. Oh? How do you know he has? I saw him right here in town this morning. And he was here last Saturday, too, come to think of it. You talk to him? Sure. And he keeps saying that we done it. Why? Don't you believe anything he says, nor Ms. Tillman, either. They're both liars, Marshal. <laughs> I've known them a long time to be liars. Jake, did, uh... Clabe threatened you? Sure he did. You go arrest him, Marshal. There's not much evidence. I just told you. Yeah, I know. You mean you ain't going to arrest him? No, not yet. Well, he ain't going to shoot me. I'm going to go kill him on the way home. Right tonight. You're talking to a U.S. Marshal, Jake. Oh, yeah. Well, all right, then you do something about it. I will. But you got any ideas of shooting him out of your head? If you'll arrest him, I will. And don't you forget what liars they are out there. You leave it to me, Jake. You hear? Sure. Not for long, Marshal. Not for very long. Jake Kaiser was a senseless kind of man, 
And I knew he'd probably go kill young Clabe Tillman the first time it happened to occur to him again. Still, I couldn't arrest Clabe for two murders just on Jake's word that he'd threatened him. I needed a lot more evidence than that. And the only way of getting it I could think of was from Clabe himself. So the next morning, Chester and I rode out to the Tillman place. It was only about 15 miles from town, and we got there early. I just don't understand these people, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what do you mean, Chester? Well, sir, if young Clay was sure enough about Duval and Benson to kill him, why didn't he come to you and have him arrested? He's taking an awful chance this way. Well, nobody came to the law when they hanged Tillman. But maybe someday they'll learn to. Well, they won't if they can go on murdering each other and get by with it. Now, let's tie up here, Chester. Hold on. Oh. Nice place Tillman made here, ain't it? Well, he worked hard on it, Chester. Now, come on, let's see if Clabe's around. All right, I'd like to have me a place like this. Well, he didn't build it on gambling money, Chester. No, sir. Hello, Marshal. Chester. Morning, Miss Tillman. Oh, hello, ma'am. Come on inside. Uh, thank you. Sit down. Thank you. Well, uh, I, I don't want to bother you, ma'am. Uh, no bother. Well, I was looking for Clay, but I, I'd like to talk to him. He's out back. He'll be here in a minute. Oh, good. Good. Uh, Miss Tillman, have you heard about uh, Duval? He was killed last night. All right. Uh, well, don't you care? Several people have been murdered around here lately, Marshal, including my husband. Oh. Well, uh... Do you think Benson and Duval were in on that? I didn't say they were. What about uh, Jake Kaiser? You're prying, Marshal. That's the trouble with the law. It's always prying. What do you want Clay for? Well, I thought he might tell me what he knows. You won't. We don't know nothing. And Clay ain't shot nobody. He was in Dodge yesterday. Yeah, I know he was. I wouldn't put it past Jake to have shot Duval himself. Well, I've thought of that, too. Do you have any idea why he might have? No. Here's Clabe now. We got visitors. Hello, Clabe. Marshal? Chester? All right, Clabe. You, uh, been hunting this morning? No. Put that rifle back where it belongs, son. Okay, Ma. I was shooting hawks with it yesterday. Left it in the barn. You should have brought it in last night, son. Sure. But, well, it was dark when I got back, Ma. I didn't see it out there. Yeah. I should have brought it in myself. What are you doing here, Marshal? Duval was murdered last night, Clib. He was? Yeah. Shot, same as Benson. Well, what do you know? 
Jake Kaiser thinks that uh, you did it. He does, huh? Uh-huh. He also said that you threatened to kill him next. Maybe I ought to. Clay, don't talk like that. Okay, Ma. How are you going to prove I killed anybody, Marshal? Well, if you have, I'll find out somehow. Go ahead. There's a law against murder, Clay. They murdered my pa. Where was the law then? I'd have had him in jail right now if I knew who they were. Too bad you weren't there, Marshal. Well, I could still arrest Jake. We don't know nothing about Jake. Do we, son? No. No, we don't know nothing. Leave us alone, Marshal. We got trouble enough. Okay, okay, Clay. But you'll hang for murder if you kill Jake. Come along, Chester. I just saw him, Mr. Dillon, walking right up Front Street. Oh, Clay? Yes, sir. It's Saturday and he's back in town, just like you said he'd be. Well, I wasn't too sure, Chester. Jake might have killed him during the week. It must have slipped his mind somehow. I know what you're thinking, Mr. Dillon. Clay's going to ride past Jake's place on his way home, ain't he? Well, the man's been killed each Saturday the last two weeks. Could happen again. You going to stop him? Get our horses, Chester. We'll ride out to Jake's. Now? Hadn't we ought to follow Clay when he leaves? No, it's Jake I want to keep an eye on. I don't understand. Just get the horses, Chester. Yes, sir. And uh, be sure there's a rope on my saddle, huh? We going to hang somebody? No, now get going. Yes, sir. Jake's just sitting in the house there. Plum unconcerned, Mr. Dillon. Somebody just got off a horse out there by the corral. I thought I heard a horse. Gosh, I wish there was a moon tonight. Oh, it's better dark. Stay out of the way of my rope, Chester. You gonna rope him? Shh, quiet now. All right now, Chester. All right, grab the rifle, Chester. Yes, sir, I, I got it. No, don't let me go. Why, he's a woman, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, that's why I used a rope. All right, stand up now, Miss Tillman. Come on. You shouldn't have stopped me, Marshal. Won't do any good. Two murders are enough, aren't they? I was saving Jake for the last. I wanted him to sweat. And I'll kill him yet. Who's out there? It's Marshal Dillon, Jake. Now put the gun down. What's going on here? Why, it's Ms. Tillman. Yeah. She wants to kill you, Jake. A woman? That's a 50 caliber sharps. I think that'd do it. You sure would. You killed Benson and Duval with it, didn't you? I'll kill you if I have to use a knife, Jake Kaiser. A woman? Going around killing people. That's terrible. You hung my husband. One of the best men that ever lived. I told you it was a mistake. I said we were sorry. That's what I've been waiting to hear, Jake. Uh, uh, no! 
All right, get his gun, Chester. Here it is, Mr. Dillon. All right, throw it away. With pleasure. Now, you're both under arrest, Miss Tillman. Well, as long as Jake hangs, too. He'll hang. What will Clegg think? He knew about this when he found your rifle in the barn last week. And I guess he figured there was no way to stop you. You found the only way, Marshal. I guess maybe I should have told you everything from the first. Yeah. Yeah, but it's too late now. I'm sorry. Don't you feel bad about it, Marshal. I don't mind. I don't really mind at all. I know you don't, Miss Tillman. And that's the worst part of it. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Helen Klebe, Sam Edwards, Ted Bliss, and Herb Ellis. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Transatlantic telephone call with Ingrid Bergman about her plans to tour as Joan of Arc, a preview of the London Company of Kismet, and an introduction to Renee Jean Mayer, star of the forthcoming Broadway production, The Girl in the Pink Tights. All this and more takes place on Mike Wallace's Stage Struck, now heard Sundays on most of these same CBS radio stations. Tomorrow at its new Sunday afternoon time, go Stage Struck at the star's address. George Walsh speaking. Lionel Barrymore's Radio Hall of Fame is great Sunday night drama on the CBS Radio Network. That was The Jokes on Us. Very appropriate title for that episode. That was Gunsmoke as originally broadcast on CBS on January the 9th in 19. 19- 54. That one featured John Daner, Helen Klebe, and Sam Edwards. Sam Edwards was always good. Helen Klebe, we were talking a little bit about her before the show started. She lived to be 96 years old. She just died. Uh, she was born in uh, 1907. So she, she died, I think, in 2002 in Los Angeles. She was originally from Washington State. So I had a nice, long life, Helen Clee, and I really always enjoy her when I, uh, when I hear her on Gunsmoke. Sam Edwards was very good, too. 
I'd like to do a little background on him. He had a website. He didn't die all that long ago, Sam Edwards. He always had that youthful voice. It took me a while when I first got into old-time radio to appreciate him. At first, I wasn't crazy about his voice, but as I got to know uh, characters that he played and know the shows that he was on, uh, I, I really got to like him a lot. And of course, he was a regular, not only in ensemble casts like on Gunsmoke, but on so many shows, so many shows. And of course, John Daner, this tremendous actor. By the way, the CBS affiliate here in town on cable has a second station that goes pretty much by the same call letters, but it it, uh, is only a cable station and it plays all TV shows from the uh, 70s, kind of like TV land. And the other night, I was watching an episode of Canon. And, and a couple observations. First of all, we may get all schmaltzy about some of these old, older TV shows, but many of them weren't nearly as good as what we remember. Let me just say that. I always liked Canon a lot. And it was one of the Quinn Martin productions. Remember, he did The Fugitive and a couple other things. But boy, when I watched this Canon, I mean, it really had some holes in it. And, of course, Cannon was played by William Conrad. And by that time, William Conrad had really bloomed up. He, he was a very heavy man. And how do I say this tactfully? He was not a good-looking man. They would have close-ups of him, and his face was all red. He looked unhealthy, and he probably was. But he just was a, a very homely man. I'm sorry, I don't know how else to say it. I loved him. Loved him on Gunsmoke. And I remember even as a young man, I wasn't a kid anymore. I was in my 20s. I loved uh, Cannon. And I liked Jake and the Fat Man. I liked him on TV. But anyway, he was not not a good-looking man. It's funny. Carol was working on, on her laptop or something in the living room when I had that on. And she looked up and she said, what is this? And I said, this is Cannon. I said, that's William Conrad. I said, that's the one that thought he should play Matt Dillon on television. And she kind of laughed. And I still think he was the superior Matt Dillon. But having said that, he was not a matinee idol. And I don't think he would have made a successful transition to television. Certainly Gunsmoke wouldn't have lasted as long. Or it would have had a whole different feel to it. Still prefer radio to television, but those are my observations. Sorry, Bill. Uh, I love you, man. Okay. We have time to squeeze in one more Friday Nighters tune here, I think. This was another one from that same era that I have not heard often on oldie stations, but it was one of my very favorites. It's by an artist by the name of Larry Flanagan. See if you remember this one. Nothing that I have. 
in the head for another week. No crying. You can't cry. There's no crying in old-time radio. Chester always starts crying at the end of every show. I know, I know how much you love being here and entertaining the folks. But we have to get out of here and uh, get on to other endeavors in life. And then we'll come back in two weeks and we'll do it all over again. So just, just chill. Chill it. In the meantime, uh, see you back in two weeks. I guess that's it. I'm all out of time. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.